I would invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Tradition. We have just come out of a season of tradition. Many of us have family traditions that, that are part and parcel of our Christmas and holiday celebration. And tradition can really be a stabilizing reality. When our kids were younger and we lived in Indiana, we were away from family. We didn't have any immediate family in the area. So we decided to create a tradition. And we decided that for Christmas morning, we would go to breakfast at what at the time was probably one of the nicest restaurants in town, the Holiday Inn. Because as a hotel, if they had guests, they had to have their restaurant open. And our kids got to order anything they wanted. In fact, I was, uh, I guess you could say, accosted by a little girl who uh, is part of the neighborhood where one of our daughters lives. And she came up to me and she said, why did you let your daughter drink coffee when she was in second grade? I said, well, it was decaf. That was one of the things. You can order coffee just like Dad. So they would order decaf coffee, and they would have a little bit of coffee with their cream and sugar. It was a fun tradition, and it carried on year after year after year. Traditions are great. Uh, We need traditions to help us sometimes in our family celebrations, to help us kind of remember generations past. There is something special about traditions. But sometimes, traditions might need to be set aside. You see, sometimes if we stubbornly hold on to a tradition and hold on to it to the point where it is actually not enjoyable anymore, it's kind of suffocating, it's kind of oppressive, then that tradition loses its significance, it loses its its import in our lives. Sometimes circumstances have to change. And sometimes we think of these traditions that have been around and, and they bring back not great memories, but sad memories of harshness or of pain. Our tradition had to change. Our kids grew up. Our kids grew up and then they got married. And then they had kids. And then they moved away. And all of a sudden we don't do Christmas breakfast anymore. We had to be able to let go of the tradition for the good of all of the family. The religious leaders in Israel in the first century had developed some traditions. They had developed traditions that they then turned into requirements, and those became suffocating and depressive to the people. By the time Jesus came along, there was this group of leaders We all know who they are. We call them the Pharisees. And they had actually been in existence for about 150 years. And they started out really, really, really good. Their intentions originally were right and good. You see, they were the prominent, and and yet what had happened in the years is these prominent religious figures, one thing happened, they broke into two camps. There were two very important rabbis. One was named uh, 
Shammai, and the other one was named Hillel. And while there were some ways that they agreed, there were ways that they were different. And so if you were a Pharisee, you were either of the camp of Hillel or the camp of Shammai. And so there was that division. And yet, like I said, they started out so well. You see, about 150 years before Jesus, we've talked about it before, there was a guy ruling from the way that uh, the Greek empire was divided up, and his name was Antiochus Epiphanes. And he was in charge of the area that included Jerusalem. And he was so set on making everybody be Greek that he imposed some very harsh things. One thing he did that just set everybody off is he actually slaughtered a pig on the altar of God, an unclean animal. He made it so that practice of the Sabbath or circumcision or even uh, attending some of the feasts of Israel was subject possibly to the death penalty. And the people got to the point where they couldn't take it anymore. They rebelled and they overthrew him. And as they set up their new system, as they, they, they brought back the law, the group that we now know as the Pharisees in the New Testament said, we need to stay with the law. We can't get outside the law. But then what they did is they began to say, well, so these are the ways that you practice the law. And these are the ways that you do it. And they began to add these regulations, these traditions. And by the time Jesus comes along, those traditions are so strong and so much ingrained that people feel if I break the tradition, I'm breaking God's law. And so the traditions became more important than the law they were hoping to preserve. And then Jesus comes in. And on that day that Jesus sat down on the mount, and specifically with Peter and Andrew and James and John, but others gathering around, I have no doubt that somewhere in the group were some Pharisees. They were checking him out, checking out what he was teaching, checking out what he was saying, taking notes to report back. And it strikes me as the words that we're going to look at today, as we will read them in a minute, it strikes me that maybe they weren't just words to the crowd, but they were also words to the religious leaders. Uh, their traditions, their rules established to protect the law had so overshadowed the law that they needed to experience what we might call a paradigm shift. They needed to see things in a new light. Listen to these words of Jesus beginning in Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of these, the least, one of the least of these commandments, and teaches others accordingly, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. These statements were designed first to 
assure the people who were listening to Jesus that he was following the law, but they were also, ah, in some way, a little bit of a shot across the bow to the Pharisees and the teachers of law that, hey, I'm here to fulfill the law, because eventually they would call Jesus a lawbreaker. Jesus never broke the law of God, but he did break the traditions of the Pharisees, and they had put the two together. We need to remember that the purpose of Jesus in each step of his earthly ministry up through the crucifixion and the resurrection was to fulfill the law, was to accomplish what the law could not do. So Jesus, I believe, has some principles that are built into this passage. I think there's some things that we can learn. And the first one is in verses 17 and 18. And it's simply this, God's clear standards transcend time and culture. God's clear standards, that's very important, transcend time and culture. Jesus said, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law. When we think law and prophets, we have to think about what we would call our Old Testament. The Old Testament is not part of our Bible to ignore. It's the foundation of what we believe. We need to know our Old Testament and, and know what it teaches. I've heard people tell me, I remember years ago, living in Marywood Trailer Park uh, in Winona Lake, Indiana, and someone said, you know, uh, our neighbor down the road, an older guy, he's struggling with some illness, and he could use a visit. And since I was the seminary student on the row, uh, the others were just college students, but I was the seminary student. I got to go talk, and I enjoyed it, and we became friends. But at one point as we were talking, he said, well, I'm going to tell you, I believe the God of the Old Testament is a God of anger, and the God of the New Testament is a God of love. And that is a very unfortunate dichotomy uh, because that doesn't give us, that, that separates, God is a God of love. Yes, there, God's wrath is real, but, but John tells us in 1 John, God is love. And you know, it, it's funny, even trying to show someone from Scripture that if they've decided that's what they believe, it's sometimes hard to change their mind. You know, we, I could have shown him, uh, from the book of Genesis, in, in Genesis chapter 16, here's Hagar who is dis distressed and in desperate need and leaves the camp and, and, and God comes to her and assures her that he's with her and assures her that she's going to have a son and assures her that she's going to take care of him. And you know what? It's interesting. A pagan woman is the first one in Scripture to give God a name. And she calls him El Rai, the God who sees. God sees me. Aren't you glad that God sees you? He knows you. He sees you. That's, that's compassion. God told Moses, Exodus chapter 3 and verse 7, when he's talking to Moses from the burning bush, he, he says, I've seen my people and I've, I've seen their pain. But literally, a translation of that would be, I know their pain. 
as they've been in Egypt, as they've been under oppression, as they've been in slavery, as they've, they've been used for their building skills, as they've been uh, all of that, God says, I've seen it. I know their pain. That's a God of compassion. Grace is seen in a God in the Old Testament who says, when you're bringing your firstborn, and, and the law says bring a lamb to dedicate your firstborn son, and you're too poor to have a lamb, then you can bring two turtle doves. And that's what Mary and Joseph did in the Gospel of Luke. They were too poor to have a lamb, but they brought two turtle doves to dedicate Jesus. Love is seen in a God who says, love your neighbors yourself, Leviticus 19, 18. God who says, even if a mother could forget her child, I will not forget you, Isaiah 49, 15 to 17. God who says in Jeremiah 31, 13, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Jesus said, don't think I came to abolish the law. Don't think I came to wipe it out. Don't think that the law doesn't matter. Don't think that the law isn't important. I didn't come to wipe it out. I came to fulfill it. You see, Jesus knew about the Mosaic law because he was kind of there when it was written. Because he is the word from the beginning. He knew that the law was revelatory. The law reveals God to his people. When you study the Old Testament, you get a glimpse of who God is. But he also knew that it was regulatory. God used the law to help his people establish a community. Establish a community that was based first and foremost on worshiping God. And that worship was to result in this mutual trust of one another. When I worship God, when I put Him in perspective, then I know how to treat my fellow human being. When I worship God and put Him in perspective, then I know why honesty is important. When I worship God and put Him in perspective, then it's important that I understand the value of cleanliness. And I understand how to care for the less fortunate. And when you look through the law, and I realize reading through Leviticus is a very arduous task, but what helped me in reading through Leviticus was to say, if I were in a position to build a community, to start a, a society from the ground up, what are the things that would be important? And when you read Leviticus, things like cleanliness are important. Things like caring for one another, important. Being honest with one another, very important. God used the law to say, you, follow a, you, you build a society that follows me first, and the rest of the nations will see. Side point. I learned this years ago. I never thought of it. But the nation of Israel in the ancient world was stationed at a crossroads, at, two, at the crossroads of two major trade routes. The one trade route called the King's Highway, I think, went north to south into Egypt. And the other one came across the Fertile Crescent. And they, they intersected at Israel. And uh, it was a man by the name of Dr. Ray Vanderlaan was saying, it seems that God positioned Israel in the place where they could influence the world. And if they would have simply lived According to God's law, instead of going out all over the place, they could have had profound influence. God gave his law to a redeemed people who had been redeemed from the bondage in Egypt so they would turn and follow him. 
And what we're going to find out in the next few weeks and months as we go through the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus points to the underlying principles of the law. You see, the Pharisees were trying to precisely adhere to every single detail, not only of the law, but also to all the traditions they placed upon the law. And they said, we're going to try to adhere to every single detail of of the traditions. And that became oppressive because they were missing the underlying principles of the law. Jesus would summarize the law this way. Love your Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. And he said, if you just do those two things, don't worry about anything else. Do those two things. You will fulfill all of the law and the prophets. God, he goes on, he says, till heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter or the least stroke of a pen will disappear from the law. You know, some of us know a little bit about printing. We know that if you use Times Roman, it's called a serif print, and there's that little, the little thing. That's kind of what Jesus is pointing to, because in the Hebrew language, there are these little marks. They're the smallest letter in the Hebrew language looks like an apostrophe. It's just a little mark, it's called yod. And it's, it's a le- it's, it's actually can be a word. And, and so he says, not even that little stroke, that's not going to disappear. And by the time Jesus came along, they had done these things where they put these little dots and little things around the letters. Those were pointings. Those, they, they brought in vowels. There were no vowels in the original that Moses wrote. But then in, in, when they were in the Babylonian captivity, they added these little dots and things. And so if you look at the Hebrew Bible, you'll see a little, uh, a little letter and then a couple dots under it or one over it. And, he said, and he's saying, those aren't going to disappear until it's, until it's all fulfilled. Fulfilling the law, accomplishing all that it was designed to accomplish, took divine effort. Jesus came to do what no human being could do. He came to fulfill the law, including being the ultimate sacrifice for your sins and for mine. He goes on, verse 19, Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Second principle. Attempting to add to or reconfigure God's standards is unwise. Attempting to add to or reconfigure God's standards is unwise. The Pharisees tended to be reductionist. Some of their debates centered around what is the essence of the law. In fact, that's where the whole statement, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and your neighbors yourself came because somebody said, what's the, what's the essence? What do I have to do? What's the one thing I have to do to gain eternal life? As a result, part of what they did when they reduced the law, as they reduced it into those things were light disobediences and those things that were heavy. Light and heavy. And uh, that became important. And, and, And in fact, that was a foolish approach, but it was like, well, this isn't as bad as this. And Jesus would tell him one time, he would say, you know, 
you will tithe, you will get 10% of, of, of spices, a little bit of a spice, and you'll tithe that, but you'll withhold funds, you'll withhold money and say to your parents, I'm sorry, I can't help you, even though you're struggling because this is dedicated to God. And they would do these dichotomies like that. And, and Jesus is saying the whole law is important. All of it is important. You can't divide it and say, well, this isn't and this is. We tend to do that. We tend to say, well, you know, this, it really wasn't a lie. It was just a white lie. No, you can't do that. A lie is a lie is a lie. James would say, Jesus' brother, James would say 30 years later, anyone who, whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles at one point is still breaking all of it. And Jesus is saying it's all important and it's all authoritative. And if we're not careful, we have that tendency to minimize or reduce. Or sometimes we'll take God's law and we'll add to it. Sometimes we'll take God's commands and we'll add to it. This sin is more important than that sin. I grew up in an era where the worst sin imaginable was divorce. And if you were divorced, I mean, you were out, you were anathema, you know. But now in the church, there's other things that we say are worse, and, and that one's not as bad. And it's like, no, sin is sin, and, 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 and it doesn't mean you're, you're marked for life. It just simply means that we all need the grace of God in our lives. Usually the sin that we think is less offensive is the one that we're prone to commit. So if I'm prone to misconstrue the facts, I justify it and say, well, I'm only giving the basic information. We have a tendency to do this culturally. God tells me to love my neighbor, right? Love your neighbors yourself. Yes, I believe that, but they better look just like me. I'll love the neighbors that look like me because those are the ones God really wants me to love. No, the good Samaritan blows that out of the water. Anybody who crosses my path at a given moment is my neighbor, and I am commanded by God to love them. We follow our culture that says, just as a loving parent just wants me to be happy, and I would say, I don't know if that's truly a loving parent, because sometimes my children needed to learn how to deal with disappointment and deal with sadness and I didn't want to be a helicopter parent who hovered over them or a lawnmower parent who just moved things out of the way. I sometimes wanted them to deal with something that was hard so I could walk with them through it. But we'll say, because God is a loving parent, all he wants is my happiness. God just wants me to be happy. You're not going to find that in the Bible. Happiness is too often related to circumstances. And we serve a God who doesn't change. We serve a God who is stable and trustworthy, and there is a great comfort in a God who is stable and trustworthy. There is great comfort in a God who says, I don't change like shifting shadows. You know where I'm at, and you know what I stand for, and I've, put, I've codified it in my word. We need to be aware that God expects us to adjust our lives to his standards and not vice versa. And so the point Jesus makes is simply this. Those of us who are going to follow him need to make certain that we don't remake his principles to fit our weaknesses. We change. God doesn't. This little section finishes up in verse 20. I tell you, 
Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to tell you right now that sentence, mind blown. I've only watched one episode of one season of The Chosen. So if you've watched them all, awesome. I watched one, and I noticed something in that one episode of that one season that I watched. When the Pharisees walked down into the marketplace, what did the people do? They all stop and they bow because these are the righteous ones. These are the perfect ones. These are the ones who are keeping the law. And now here's this new, young, upstart rabbi saying, unless your righteousness is even better than the Pharisees, you can't have eternal life. And if you're sitting there in the first century listening to that, you're going, well, I'm done. I forget it. Well, how can, I, I can never be like them. Here's the point I think Jesus is making, and simply this. True righteousness is an inside-out reality. You see, the Pharisees focused on the externals and the rules, and they didn't talk about the focus on the underlying principles that make our interpretation of the rules more important than the stated commands. Let me give you an example of how we sometimes make our interpretation more important than what the Bible says. Many years ago, Charlene and I were in youth ministry. And we took all of our middle schoolers once out to a, uh, a mini campout retreat at a place called the Treehouse Farm. It sounds more fun than it actually was. But anyway, there were tree houses. I mean, literally, we slept in tree houses. Now, you know, we've got to have activities. In fact, with the middle schoolers, about every 15 to 20 minutes, you've got to have a new activity. And uh, so one of our activities was the, the classic scavenger hunt. We divided them into four groups and sent them out to look for stuff around the treehouse farm. One of the items listed on the list of things they were to find was, quote, a berry. Find a berry. So everybody goes out, they come back, you know, we blow the whistle, time's up, we're going through their stuff. It was fall. There weren't many berries left. First group, they got everything. Ah, we we couldn't find a berry. Second group, ah, we couldn't find a berry. Third group, ah, we couldn't find a berry. Fourth group, hey, we found a berry. What? Where'd you guys find a berry? How did you find a berry? They went over and grabbed one kid. We have Josh Berry. That was his name. I went, check. What? What? You didn't say we could. I said, find a berry. That was it. You interpreted it as a blueberry, a raspberry, a blackberry. But I just said, find a berry. We do that all the time, don't we? We, we, and that's what the Pharisees did with the law. God gave a command, love your neighbors yourself. And the Pharisees says, yeah, but this is what loving your neighbors yourself looks like. They got to do this, 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 this. They can't be a Samaritan because they're not your neighbor. They can't be this. They can't be that. And they would add to it. And God's no, love your neighbor as yourself. And, and, and so true righteousness isn't about, it doesn't matter what we do on the outside. Yes. 
But the motive is so important. The Pharisees were the picture of external perfection in one respect. They were righteous on the outside. They were missing the point that God wanted them to have. And Jesus would point it out in Matthew 23. I am often humbled, anytime, I am always humbled anytime I read Matthew 23. Because Matthew 23 is when Jesus reserved his absolute harshest comments and harshest critique for people like me who are religious leaders. And he says to the Pharisees in 23, 25, and 6, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee! First clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. That's the point. That's how you, your righteousness supersedes that of the Pharisees. When you let God clean out the inside, when you let Him clean out the inside, our Creator knows us better than we know ourselves. And he knows that the core of who we are, that the heart is where the real change takes place. Real spiritual growth starts at the core of who we are. Think about different individuals in Scripture. David, after committing adultery at best, and it could have been worse, and ordering the murder of the offended husband, David comes clean before God in Psalm 51, and he says this in verses 16 and 17, you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Jesus will reference Isaiah throughout his ministry. In Isaiah 29, 13, Isaiah says this, The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based merely on human rules they've been taught. The point that the Pharisees missed, the point that Jesus is making is, yes, the outside matters, but it, what starts on the inside matters first. And so Jesus makes this statement, which is a statement of hyperbole. Unless your righteousness is far greater than the Pharisees, you can't even make it. You can't enter the kingdom of heaven. True righteousness that's greater than that of the religious leaders begins with a changed heart. For us, it's a changed heart that begins with giving my life to Christ. Believing he died on the cross for my sins and he rose again the third day. What we celebrated at communion. Asking Jesus to be the forgiver and leader of my life. That's where it begins. That heart, when it's committed to the person of God, brings about change. Brings about real change. You've probably heard stories. I've heard stories of people who have changed. It is said of the great Welch revival back in the earliest part of the 20th century, the great Welsh revival that the mules in the coal mines didn't know how to follow the commands of their masters 
because they weren't swearing anymore, because they had been changed from the inside out. Real change begins in the depth of who we are. On the one hand, it does matter what we do. It really matters. But what matters more is the motive. Why I do what I do matters, but if if I don't change my motive, I don't let God change who I am on the inside, then my habits may change for a while, but it's not making a difference. I need to humble myself before God, allow God to change my heart. Otherwise, I'm the same person on the inside, and it's just cosmetic changes on the outside. As we continue this series, we're going to discover that the key for each one of us is not to justify our behavior. The key for each one of us is to look inward and say, God, what changes do you want me to make in my heart so that I can be the person you want me to be each and every day? I'm going to ask you to join me in a two-sentence prayer. Uh, And and it's a prayer that just kind of says that. And and if we pray that together, uh, hopefully God will use that and will use His Word in our hearts. So the prayer is going to be behind me on the screen. And so this morning, let's close our service with this simple two-sentence prayer. Here's the first one. Pray it with me. Heavenly Father, draw me nearer to you so I can best represent you as I strive to live your kingdom principles now. But we don't live in isolation of individuals. We are a faith community. So the second part is this. Heavenly Father, draw us as a faith community nearer to you so we can best represent you as we strive to live your kingdom principles now. May that truly be the prayer of our hearts this morning as we go our separate ways. May we truly ask God to keep working in our hearts. And sometimes the changes will be great. And sometimes the changes will be small. But if we trust him, he is faithful to do what he wants to do to shape us to be who he wants us to be. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for your principles. May we truly, daily follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.